Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1. Last week, as we are continuing in our series through our statement of faith and the things that we believe, we looked at the fall of man. The fall of man. And in the other doctrines we've looked at, we have gone with we believe and then we live. And you know, it's a little awkward to then now say we live the fall of man. But as I've meditated on it, at first it sounds strange and weird, but I've begun to think, really, the fall of man uh, impacts our every day, just as much as the Word of God should impact our every day. In fact, sometimes God's Word doesn't impact our every day because sin is impacting our every day, the fall of man. And so, as we considered last week what we believe regarding the fall of man and our present condition in sin, it is important for us to recognize, to see at what impact that has in our daily lives and what are things and how can we apply the truths of what we learned and it make a difference today tomorrow, this week, in our individual lives. As we begin, I'd like to again read our statement of faith regarding the fall of man. We believe that man was created by God in his own image, and by willful disobedience fell from his high and holy state. Consequently, all mankind are sinners, and by nature utterly void of the righteousness required by God positively inclined to do evil, and therefore under the just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we consider and recognize the history of mankind and our present state, fallen in sin, we are reminded of what you have done for us. As we think of your glorious salvation, you shedding your priceless blood that we might be redeemed. And Lord, as we consider and see ourselves as dead in sin, we rejoice that in you we are made alive and we are passed from death unto life. And Lord, I pray that as we continue in that life, we would recognize the continued effects of the fall, the continued problems of sin in our own lives. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we might follow you and know you. And in this, our lives might be more and more conformed into your image. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. The beginning of our statement is that we believe man was created by God in his own image. We touched on that a little bit last week, and I'd like to follow up on that. If we look here in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, we see, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle 
and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him, he, him, male and female, created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life. I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. As we learned last week, we are created in the image of God. As we learned last week, mankind has fallen from the high and holy estate. In Psalms, our state is described as holy and crowned with glory and honor. But we have fallen because of sin from that state. Here we can see a position that God had created man in his image, created to have dominion over all his creation, a special place of honor, in a sense from which we have fallen. And why do I say in a sense? Well, because just we have, because we have fallen does not mean that we are no longer in the image of God. For we find throughout Scripture later that we are continually referred to as mankind as in the image of God. We did not lose that in the fall. Continue to this day, we are in the image of God. We touched a little bit last week on the fact of reality that that concept, that reality, communicates our priceless value, our priceless value. And so again, I remind you, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged in hope that no matter what you yourself tell yourself or mean people around you tell you or anyone tells you about who you are, you are precious in God's sight. And that's what really matters. You are precious, precious, and priceless. Again, I remind you, this is the reason why Jesus died for us. The most precious thing you could imagine, the eternal God-man or the, the eternal Son of God, the God-man Jesus Christ, shedding his blood, his precious blood, so that we could be redeemed from this curse of sin. Be encouraged. You are priceless. And as you think of yourself being created in the image of God, remember back to this time in the Garden of Eden. Much of this is still true. The, the position that God gave to Adam and Eve over all of the earth still has meaning and significance. We still do function because we are created in the image of God in ability to hold dominion over the earth, here described in the sense of agriculture and also in the sense of um, dealing with the creatures, the other beasts 
and fowls of God's creation. We have work to do. When we're creating the image of God, its most basic reality is that we are valuable, we are unique, we are special. But it continues on in our relationship with God. You see, God has a character and He has attributes. That is, who He is and what He is like. And we can learn about these attributes of God and who He is throughout Scripture. And as creatures made in His image, we reflect aspects of His attributes, and in other cases, we possess aspects of His character and attributes. Now, obviously, this is finite, because we are finite beings, and God is infinite. We are limited. God is not limited. But yet, if you were to look at some of these attributes, we can see how we reflect them. One illustration is God's eternal nature. We heard the song saying here about God in your tomorrows. Now, that's not us. We are present. God is eternal. And in one sense of eternity is that there is no limitation of time. He is not bound by time. He supersedes time. He is in the past and in the present and in the future all at the same time. That's why he's able to be, uh, that's why he's able to be sovereign. That's why he's able to be omniscient on top of the fact that he just is omniscient too. But he is supreme over. And in that case, we don't even come, we, we, there's, there's nothing of that in us. But yet if we consider God in its eternal nature in that he has always been and he always will be, we have a part of that in being created in his image because we learn from Scripture that we too are eternal beings. Now you might say, huh? No, we're not. Yes, we are. We are not eternal in a sense of eternity past. We were created at a point in time. But at that point, we are eternal beings in that we will live forever. This is the uniqueness of us being created in the image of God in a sense in which we possess this attribute limited of God. There are so many other attributes of God, and my purpose this morning is not to go through all of them, but to give you a few little samples of them so that you can see how you practice them. Let me give you another attribute of God. In 1 John, we are told very bluntly, directly, clearly, God is love. Now, you could debate a long time about what love means. The simplest definition is God is love. God is love. Well, and we looked at the concept of love. He is love in its most infinite reality and application. He loves us intimately and infinitely. There is no way we can even begin to comprehend the love of God. It is beyond our comprehension. And even as the song says that if the skies were of parchment made and the oceans were filled with ink and though every man were ascribed by trade, we would drain the oceans dry to write of the love of God. We could never exhaust the magnitude of God and his love. But now think for a moment. 
we are creatures, really, of love. We love because God loved us. We love, and when we love as human beings, and no matter how finite it may be, it is us possessing that image of God, a uniqueness that we have, a uniqueness in that we have love. We have intelligence. Oh, my. Comparing it to the intelligence of God, you would think there's no comparison, and there isn't, but there is. All of our intelligence, no matter how finite it may be or how brilliant we think it might be, it is infinitely smaller than God's intelligence. But the very fact that we possess it as creatures is evidence of us being created in the image of God. And so how does this make a difference in our lives, these things? Well, let's think of further attributes. God is a creator. In fact, he is the creator of everything. He spoke and it came into existence. Do we create things? Now, we can't just speak and it come into existence. He created ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. We create from what God has created. And that very aspect of our uniqueness is an evidence of us being created in the image of God. And so, how do we live this reality of being created in the image of God? And though we have fallen, how do we live it? Here's another one. God is righteous. God is just. Have you ever noticed how even the youngest child has a sense of justice? That is the image of God coming forth in that little child. Because God is righteous, God is just, and even from a young age, we reflect that reality in our lives. And so, how do we live these realities? We could keep going on and on and on in all of these attributes, but let's go back through them. How do we live in the reality of us being created in the image of God as eternal beings? Well, as we learned in Bible hour this morning, we learned of prophecy future. Prophecy should excite us as eternal beings, especially when it's prophecy of events that we're going to be there to see. And so we need to live not just in understanding what God has revealed of future events, but also living in light of eternity. We need to be living not just in the presence of here and now, but the way that we live in the presence of the here and now, it is lived and our decisions are made, our thoughts, our concepts, our, our, our ways of resolving conflict with people, our ways of resolving disappointments and discouragements rise above the present. And though we cannot transport ourselves and abide in the future as God can, we need to have the perspective of what he has revealed of the future in how we live now. How about love? Oh my, all of us long to be loved. All of us love others, right? Have you ever felt like a failure as a lover? I have. Why? Because the sin curse has corrupted even our concept of love. 
And so we need to recognize as we think of the fallen nature of man and not allow the fallen nature and perspective of man, of love, to corrupt the pure and holy concept of love in that God is love. And we need in that regard to recognize what is not true to live what is true. I'll give you a little hint. In that, you're going to need Jesus. I need Jesus to love. The real truth of the matter is, I can't love. It's impossible for me to love. I need God who is love to be living inside of me and his love flowing from me. That's real, and that's actually one part as we continue through this whole concept of the image of God that is exciting, absolutely exciting in that as Christians, as those who have received the forgiveness of Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, one of his fruits, remember, is love. We then become the vessels, the temple of God through which he lives his life if we let him. Think of the concept of intelligence. How do we live our lives? How does this aspect of God's image that we possess, do we live? Intelligence, let's tie it for a moment just for sake of illustration with creation. Do we use our intellect and our creative nature to glorify God? You know, there's many illustrations of amazing inventions that man has made wonderful, glorious things in some regards, of incredible inventions. Do we see those things and use those things for the glory of God or for the glory of man or worse, for evil? I'll give you just one invention. Many massive parts of technology. Do you see how technology in the world of the communication age can be used for incredible good to the glory of God? for the distribution of the gospel, but yet at the same time can be used for incredible evil. Here we see creations of man reflecting our image-bearing nature of God. But is it being corrupted by the fall of man or is it being used for the glory of God? Think with me again for the aspect of righteousness or justice. When we live our lives and we're conducting ourselves, are we living in a righteous manner? Both morally and of our own conduct, but also then in our actions towards others. Do we live justly? Now again, a lot of this can't be done without Christ. And we're going to come back to that. One of the parts of the image of God is that in the beginning, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and it was a very special state. Then they fell. And some of the preciousness, and it's hard to specifically delineate all what, was tarnished. The, the image was marred, you might say. But then, as we consider the gospel, and we consider that Jesus Christ washes away our sins, there is a, in a, some sense, in which that marred image is healed and restored. And then ultimately, 
when we look to the future state of when we are glorified, we will find the Mars removed and be right back as it was in the Garden of Eden. And so as we consider what it was in the past and as we consider the glory of what it will be in the future, what is the here and now? We're going to come back to it. What's the here and now? We're going to come back to it. But let's look at some other concepts here. We learned of the image of God, us being created in God's image. And then we learned from Romans chapter 5 of the willful disobedience of Adam. It's important for us to understand the question here of willful disobedience and that consequently all mankind are sinners. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That scripture was written to Christians. It is very important for Christians to recognize that sin is still among us. That same passage, though, tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must recognize the reality of sin among us. It's our biggest problem. All of our problems trace back to sin. We need to recognize this. And then we need to remember and take heed in learning from history of how we live. In our statement of faith, we declare that by willful disobedience, man fell from his high and holy state. Willful disobedience. Adam was not deceived. He chose to not obey God. He chose to disobey God. He chose to. So often when we sin, oftentimes we don't have to give an answer for it right off, do we? But oftentimes we just kind of sugarcoat it, don't we? We made a mistake. We, we, we just excuse it. We just kind of gloss over it. And, and sometimes we sin willfully and we sometimes have allowed ourselves to become so hardened that we don't even see it as sin anymore. We need to beware. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Do you know why Adam sinned? Do you know why we sin? Now, we could say, well, it's because we're under the sin curse. It's because of the sin nature. That's not really an accurate answer. The reason we sin is because we do not believe God. I got one of them great, Pastor, I have a question cards this past week, and, and a child asked me to list what I thought were the first three sins in history or in the Bible. You know what the first one I listed was? Unbelief. You see, in the New Testament we learn that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Adam's problem in the garden was not that he was deceived, 
It was not that he just fell in a weak moment. It was that he did not believe God. Simple fact. He did not believe God. And so he took of the fruit and did eat it and fell into sin. Hebrews chapter 3, look with me at verse 12. Here is the application we can take from this. We look back at Adam, and we look at how he fell into sin. And now we look here in Hebrews chapter 13, where it says this. Actually, we need to look at verse 12. Take heed. Pay attention. Wake up. Take heed. Brethren, oh, this is written to brethren. These are believers lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Take heed. This is why when we ask the question, we believe these facts of the fall of man, why it's important that we live these facts. Take heed. Do you see what it's described as? An evil heart of unbelief. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Think back to me, with me again to Adam and Eve. You see, Adam's first sin was that of unbelief. His heart became in that moment an evil heart of unbelief, which then he continued in sin. If we look at James as how the progress goes, um, we find that you know, there's at the beginning a temptation, a desire, a lust, and there is a progression. And where does that progression lead to? To death. And at a certain point, unless that desire, is, when it is conceived, is, is not aborted, you may say, it will bring forth sin. In this case here, at that time with Adam, it wasn't aborted. The lusts that were conceived turned into a heart of unbelief that then turned into disobedience, sin, and as we know the account, and death by sin. Take heed, brethren. Take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Beware of unbelief. When God has given commands in His Word, in His Scriptures, heed, obey. It's important for us. And you know what? Sometimes we need helpers. Look here as it says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let's look again at Adam and Eve there in the garden. It tells us that Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. She had been deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. God had said, do not eat of the fruit. It's not food. He didn't say it's not food. He just said, don't eat of it. 
She sees the fruit after hearing the little speech of the serpent, the devil, Satan, and she sees the fruit that it was, quote, good for food. No, that is deceitfulness of sin. That is deception. That's not true. It's not food. God said, don't eat of it. Now, they didn't have Hebrews 3. But imagine for me a moment, you do have Hebrews 3, and Adam is there nearby or with her. Very likely, Adam, it's implied, is with her through all of the temptation. Adam needs to step up and, what's it say? Exhort her while it is the day. This command is given, lest any be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We help one another be alert to the lies and the deceit and the falsehoods that come with the temptations to sin. And we need to be helping each other. So there are two aspects of sin. There is sin that is committed willfully, with a high hand, you might say, with the stiff neck or with the hard heart of unbelief, where we know the truth and we choose not to believe God and choose to believe ourselves or whoever else is influencing us. That's a serious matter. Repent of it. We must repent of, of unbelief. But then there's other times in which we are deceived and we are walking in sin and we don't even realize it in those times, we need brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us and to exhort us. It doesn't say beat them over the head. Nobody thought that was funny? It doesn't say to beat them over the head. It says to exhort one another. Exhort is a encouraging. It is a building up. It is a teaching. Let's apply this to marriage. Husbands, you're commanded to love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Adam and Eve were the first couple married by God. How could Adam have loved his wife in that day? It says that Christ is the Savior of the body, and it has that in the same passage about husbands loving their wives which has an inference that there's a way in which husbands can be involved in the saving of their wives. Think back to Adam and Eve now again with me. How might that have gone? How might that have gone if Adam, rather than in willful disobedience, continuing on, and by the way, any notions you ever hear about him being a hero in this is there's nothing there. It, that's all deception. There's no hero here in Adam. No, no. This is blatant, willful disobedience. How, how, might, how might he have been able to have helped his wife? Well, if he was there the whole time, and less for the sake of illustration, assume he was there the whole time, heard all that that serpent had lied to his wife, he, he could have said, love, no, this isn't food. This serpent is a liar. This is a deception. We need to obey God. We need to trust Him. We need 
to believe him. Would things have been different? Now, I'm one who tells kids all the time, and I got a lot of kids who ask the what-if questions, that we got to be careful with the what-if questions. So I won't ask a what-if question. Accept the what-ifs in your life. You ask the what-if questions. We'll leave Adam and Eve in the history where they are for what we saw happened, happened, and it's done and settled, and there's, there's no changing it. But what about for you tomorrow when there are lies that come into your minds and hearts, deceptions and deceitfulnesses of sin, how will you today, today, do you see that note here in Hebrews? How will you today exhort in truth? There's another scripture. There's another scripture that declares that we take heed to our spirit. We have another scripture that speaks of us renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time that you heard a worldview, we'll call it that, or you heard something said, or even your own heart asked the question of something you do or believe and said, is that true? Do we renounce the hidden things of dishonesty? That's what Adam needed to do there in the garden. Husbands, as the head, we need to be living in truth. And we do need to be renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty. We need to be taking heed to our spirits that we ourselves are not sinning willfully from an evil heart of unbelief. If we are, we need to confess. We need to repent. We need to recognize that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That it, sin comes from an evil heart of unbelief. And we need to take heed and beware and listen and watch for the deceitfulness of sin. And in our own lives, we need to be renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty. And in our homes and our family, be renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty. In our relationship with our wives, we as husbands need to humbly, humbly lead our wives earnestly encourage our wives daily in the truth, in faith, and in obedience. When our wife, or really, as Galatians 5 says, a brother, anyone who is a Christian, but let's build it in a family context of husband and wife. When a wife is overtaken in a fault, do we with gracious humility in a spirit of weakness, of meekness, restore her. Restore her. Recognizing, understanding our statement of faith and recognizing the history of, of Adam and Eve and consequently all of us are sinners. We must be alert and take heed 
to our own spirit, our own hearts, and also to the deceitful deception of sin. So often sin paints itself as something enjoyable or to be desired. In fact, even the fruit in the garden was something there that was presented to be desired as something pleasurable. In Hebrews also it speaks of, of, of Moses recognizing that the pleasures of sin are but for a season. Whereas the scriptures also teach that at the right hand of God there are pleasures forevermore. Let us have the perspective understanding these truths. And as parents, I know we talked a little bit about this last week, but are we teaching our children, are we raising our children, recognizing that consequently all mankind are sinners? Are we, from that early age, encouraging and admonishing them of the deceitfulness of sin? How often are children carried to and fro like a ship in a storm on the sea by just whatever they feel like or whatever they're told and how easily they are molded and shaped. Are we as moms and dads teaching and training them and encouraging them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, recognizing they are sinners, but also at the same time teaching them that they are created in the image of God and that God loves them and cherishes them and longs to redeem them? And then do we teach them of how precious and important it is for us to be conformed into the image of Christ and to not go astray as sheep, but to return to Jesus, the bishop, the overseer, the shepherd of our souls. It is so important for us in our family lives for these to be real. In our statement of faith, we have this statement that we as mankind are positively inclined to do evil. Now, last week we presented and demonstrated this from the scriptures and didn't spend a lot of time applying it. We say that this is what we believe, but will what we believe make a difference in how we live? We found that this is true. So understanding that this is true, what ought we to do about it? Well, one scripture comes to mind for me where it says, make not provision for the flesh. Be aware that we are positively inclined to do evil. Therefore, we should be careful not to be putting ourselves in places of undue temptation. We have enough temptation that bombards us in this world that we live in. Why would we make provision for the flesh? Why would we, it's, it's as Job said, I, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Why, if we don't believe in the sin of lusting, as Jesus said that you've heard that lust after a woman has committed adultery in your heart, then why would we put before ourselves or, or give opportunity for ourselves to be exposed to evil in that way? This is one reason why both as individuals and as parents, 
we need to be aware of the fact that we are positively inclined to evil. Let me give you a practical one. Put a filter on your phones and on your computers. Even if you have to have access and sometimes the filter gets in the way, you maybe know the password, but at least put the filter on your devices knowing that there is a stop point in the situation. The technology can be used for great good and technology can be used for great evil. Over and over and over, there are stories of those who have been innocently using a device and confronted with something evil. And what kicks in? The positively inclined to do evil. One click and then another and then another. This is one reason why if you recognize the that we are positively inclined to evil, you will have a filtering on your device because by doing so, you will be checked. Again, even if you have the password to that filter, you can override it, right? But at a moment, you will be checked and hopefully you will not have a hard heart of unbelief. You see, there's the deceitfulness of sin in which people have been led into sin of different kinds, and, and it just is this, this, this led into thing. You know, they design marketing that way. It's called clickbait. That's what it's called, bait. And, and they use it for marketing, and then they use it also for evil. Well, in that moment of, of weakness, you may click. And I don't mean the weakness in the sense of, oh, you were just overcome. No, it's willful disobedience. But is there that check, knowing that we are positively inclined to evil, that the technology will stop you? And oh, by the way, parents, no matter how good your filter, how great your filter is, it all comes back to this heart. There's not been a single filter that I have not been able to myself figure out how to overrule or somebody show me that it can be overruled. Not a one. Every one of them can be overruled. And I, I, it's, it's, it's fact. So you don't put your hope and your trust in a filter. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. And the filter is a step that can be used, and we should use it for ourselves to recognize. Check, wait, pause. You, you, are, being, you are being deceived by the deceitfulnesses of sin. Will you have faith in God and obey Him and flee fornication? Or will you in willful disobedience override the filter and go on? This is an illustration of how positively inclined to do evil can be taken and bring a practical application to our own lives to make a difference. I'm dealing with one that permeates our world and our society. But there are many other situations in which you yourselves and you know where you have weaknesses, you have secret sins, identify them or with the Spirit of God, may He identify them, or maybe it's a spouse that's identifying them, or another brother in Christ who is exhorting you in the deceitfulnesses of sin. Wake up to it and pay attention and be aware of this positively inclined to do evil. Take heed to your spirit Take heed lest you have a heart of unbelief or are being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. All of this, though, and all the terrible things that we've looked at regarding sin and the fall of man, and we could keep going. Is it a heavy burden? 
sin's ugly. So what's the solution? Well, our next statement of faith is regarding the salvation of man. But I'd like to go back to the theme and the concept of the image of God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans chapter 8. That chapter sure does tell us an awful lot about the problems from the sin-cursed world. We don't have a lot of time to go into all of it. It's a chapter that you may be familiar with that climaxes in declaring the love of God for you and me, in spite of the groaning of creation. But look with me at verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. If this morning you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are foreknown by God, and he has predestinated you to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. What's your destiny? That's not some fairy tale, mystical thing. Destiny is real. Well, there's some kind of destiny that's real. This is one of them. That if you are a Christian, that means Christ lives inside of you and your destiny is to be conformed. You're to be changed to be like him into his likeness. Do you see here a restoration? I do. A restoration to how it was in the beginning and in some ways even more special. Over in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, it speaks of us as Christians becoming new. There it tells us we have put on the new man. And then it describes this new man we are as being renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he washes away your sin, he redeems you, he buys you back from the bondage of sin and the condemnation of sin, he creates you a new creature. And that new creature, it says, is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And who's the him that created him? Christ. You're renewed in the knowledge of the image of Christ. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Really, again here, similar to Romans chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 deals a lot with the problems we have in this world, in this life. You might say the down and dirty life. But yet in all of this, we find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, it says this, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, 
are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the Spirit of God. And He is conforming you and changing you, and Christ has created you a new creature to be in the image of Christ. Christ is God. And in salvation, there is a transformation. And all of the problems of sin and the overcoming of sin is not about some strategy or system of discipline. It's not about creating a series of safeguards here and safeguards here and there. There's nothing wrong with safeguards, and there's nothing wrong with discipline. But if your hope is in your discipline, or if your hope is in your safeguards, they're going to fail you, because your hope can only, 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 only be in Jesus Christ. And that is by moment by moment, day by day, beholding His glory, His glory. And His glory will change you. His glory will renew you. His glory will change you from glory to glory. This is what we sometimes refer to as progressive sanctification. It's an important fact of how we are from day by day set apart daily to God, and we are changed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so all of the ugliness and the nastiness of sin, which is important for us to understand and acknowledge in our lives, the remedy of it is not to be cast down and to be beaten down in guilt or in discouragement or in hopelessness, but to rise our eyes to the glory of Jesus. We could be discouraged by the fall of man and the marring of the image that we are created in, but we ought not to be because God has made the provision for us, the destiny for us, to be conformed to the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. And we have a part in that in this day. Yes, there is a day for those who have been saved, redeemed in glory, but we don't have to wait to glory to continually be transformed and changed into his image. It is something that as we behold his glory day by day, he changes us. There is where we need to be rejoicing Chapter 4, we don't have time to go into it. But if this excites you, and I hope it is exciting you, go home and read 1 Corinthians cha- or 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because it goes on and talks about some of the blindness and the deception, but then it climaxes and glories in one point here in verse 7 where it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Those, those days we struggle with these earthen vessels. Sometimes we like to blame sin on these earthen vessels. And it's debatable of how much that's legitimate, but it's always a problem with us and of unbelief, but we have in our earthen vessels a treasure that the excellency and of the power of God may be of, that the excellency and of the power may be of God and not of me. Here again, you see this, the change from glory to glory to glory. You find sin, and it just seems to be overwhelming. It just seems I can't get victory over this. You're right. You can't. Neither can I. Jesus can God can. He is the power. It's not of us. 
And yes, verse 8 continues, we're troubled on every side. There's a lot of problems, but we can face those problems knowing that we have the life of Jesus being manifested in our bodies. And it's all tied back to our statement of faith talking about the image of God we are created in. That was marred by sin in some ways. But when we receive Jesus, there's a renewing of it as we are created as a new creature with the destiny of a complete transformation into the image of God, image of Christ. And yet we don't have to wait for that destiny. Day by day we can experience that destiny as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. As we, as Brother Reisner shared a few weeks ago, we present ourselves. We present ourselves. Gracious God, we bow before you and give thanks that you are good, that you are love. You are our hope. You are our joy and our peace. You are our treasure in these earthen vessels. Plagued by sin, the curse of sin is around us, but in it and in the trouble of it, we hope in you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us as individuals first and as families, as a church, and indeed may it spread to all the world. May we be filled with you, living and abiding and dwelling in you. For the sin seems so strong, it seems often to reign as supreme in our lives, but it ought not so to be because you have won. Your grace overcomes. And may we this day acknowledge, reckon ourselves indeed dead unto sin, but alive unto you. May this day we behold your glory. May this day we be changed into the image of you, Lord Jesus. We rejoice in the destiny you have prescribed for us. And may we live in eternity, recognizing that destiny and abiding in you day by day, looking for our blessed hope, your glorious appearing, Lord Jesus, our great God. And so this day we bow before you. We long for your coming. We pray even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we pray that as we wait, we might occupy till you come. May we continue in faith as we have received you by faith. We need you, and we bow before you in this day. Dear Spirit of God, you know who in this room is yet in need of being redeemed. May you work in their hearts. Reprove them of sin, the deceitfulness of it, of righteousness and what it is in Christ and of our being utterly void of it. And may you do spirit 
convey to each one the importance of Jesus. And I pray that those who have not been redeemed today would believe on you, be saved, be redeemed, be created a new creature after your image. We commit ourselves to you as we pray in your name. Amen. This morning, let us be sober in understanding sin, but let us also be awake to knowing the wonderful glory we have in Jesus. Let's rejoice in him. If there's sin that needs to be dealt with, humbly, humbly come to Jesus. Confess it, knowing he is faithful and just to forgive it. And then glory in his forgiveness. He alone is the one in whom we 